Good morning. Hey, as our uh, as our kids are headed out to their ministry time, I um, wanted to just give you greetings from our Dominican Republic campus. Some of you didn't know we had a campus down in the DR. We do. And this is Pastor Tito. He's our campus pastor down there. And we're in a, a new ministry, well, relatively new, called Las Brisas. And um, it's almost become another church plant that Tito has done. So it's really cool. Some of you actually are supporting the, some kids from this ministry. And so uh, Tito wanted to say hi. He and his wife, this is his wife, Suheli. Here's my wife. Here's his wife. And then here's his two kids, Joy and Danny. And they just want, they asked me, would you just say to the church, hey, thank you for your love, for your prayers, for your support. And uh, they wanted to greet you. So Andrew and I were down there this past week ministering and uh, praying for people and teaching and stuff. And so it was just great to be with them. We had not been down there for three years because we went, last time we went was just before COVID. And then, you know, COVID happened and other stuff happened. So last time we saw Joy and Danny, you know, as kids, they were a lot smaller. And it was like, wow, you guys have really grown up because that's what kids do, right? Isn't it funny how when you haven't seen a kid for two or three years and you see them, you're like, whoa, what happened? But but when they're our own kids, we see them every day. It's like, I didn't even see that growth happen. It's just, boom, there they are. Uh, Kids grow. So we're in this parenting series about um, discipleship and parenting. And we've said, you know, parenting is discipleship. And I want to start my message by addressing specifically parents and parenting, and then in a couple minutes, we'll get to discipleship. So, you know, if you're not a parent or don't want to be a parent or don't care about parenting, hang on, just, you know, we'll be with you in a second. So, so parents, question for you, what's the biggest problem you face in your parenting? That's not meant to be a rhetorical question. It's meant to get you to think. As you parent, and, you know, as a young parent, or as a parent of kids that are you know, maybe teenagers or maybe even just before they're teenagers, adolescents, or, or maybe you're a parent of adult kids. It's a whole new stage. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the five stages of parenting. Where you are right now, what would you say is the biggest problem you face? And, and I've heard other people ask this question. I've heard all different kinds of answers to, to people saying, you know, the culture around us. It's, it's so much harder to parent today than it was 20, 30 years ago. The the culture is just going against what I'm trying to do with my kids. And I feel like, man, it's just so hard. And sometimes that involves the public schools. I hear a lot of people complaining about public schools. And again, it's for Christian parents, it's like, man, I'm just constantly clashing with what's being taught at the school. And by the way, just a little advertisement here. We have a school here called Open Door Christian School. It's a great school. All four of our kids went through. And so, you know, I'm not saying you have to, but it's a great school. And maybe you're one of those parents and families that are saying, you know, I, I'm done with that. I want to send my kids to Open Door Christian School. I'm done with the public schools. It could, it could be you. So check them out. Um, I think another problem that some people might say is the crazy schedules that we all have these days, the pace of life. Man, you know, especially if you're a family where you're trying to balance the career of mom and dad and, you know, the, all of the, the parenting and the career balancing, it could just be overwhelming. And then today's kids, 
man, the, this is a schedule of kids today is like wild. It's like they're businessmen and businesswomen at age, you know, 10. And they're running around doing this and all the sports and all the activities. And I don't know, it just seems to me that this is one of the big challenges that parents are facing today is balancing all those schedules. Other parents would say, no, no, it's none of those things. It's the online influence that I am constantly fighting. And by the way, if you are fighting that, way to go. You're not one of those parents that's laid down and just giving your kids a phone, giving them an iPad, giving them a computer and just go, you know, hey, figure it out. You don't do that with little kids or adolescents. You coach them. You help them. You limit the amount of time they have because online influences are crazy, dangerous. Now, we live in a world that's, we're online, so they, learn, they need to learn how to navigate that, but it doesn't happen by you just giving a 10-year-old a phone or a computer because you're too busy to parent them because you're doing your career or you got your show you want to watch or you got the things you want to do. No, 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 no. This, this is a big deal, but is it the biggest problem? Maybe it is for you. <laughs> Some parents say, my biggest problem is my kids. I mean, you know, it's like they drive me crazy. No, they don't. They just draw out the crazy in you. <laughs> There's a difference, okay? Your kids are not driving you crazy. They're just drawing out what's already in you. This is, what, this is why parenting can be so challenging. I, I, I remember over the years, I, I said so many times to my kids, sometimes you know, in this tone of voice, sometimes in this tone of voice, you guys are driving me crazy. If you would just do what I say, things would be so much better around here. Has anybody ever said that? Oh, you bunch of liars. I know you've said that. If you haven't said it, you've thought it. <laughs> I've, I've said it multiple times. It's, it's just felt true to me. If my kids would behave, if they would stink and do just what I said, everything would go so much better. Um, but what happened when I began to say that and think that is that I began to slip into what I think most parents slip into, and that is parenting as behavior modification. As if the goal of parenting is to get our kids to behave. And some of you are going, you mean it's not? <laughs> what? I mean, I, that, that's not the goal of parenting is to get my kids to behave. I'm supposed to let my kids do whatever I want. No, those are two different things. But the goal of parenting, if you think it's to get your kids to behave, I want to challenge that goal this morning. Do I think it's important for our kids to behave? Absolutely. But I don't think it's nearly near as high as most parents make it. So you say, well, well, well what would it be then if it's, if it's not getting our kids to behave? Well, not only do I want to cast a vision today for what it could be, I also want to bring you to a text that I think is the, like one of the most unlikely places that God could have taken me to teach me what I need as a parent and what my kids need and now what every disciple needs. So of all things, turn to Luke chapter two and you're like, wow, wow. we've been in Luke chapter two. I know, I know, it's just so good. And not only have we been in Luke chapter two since, what, 10 years ago, I don't know how long it's been, 
Feels like it's been a long time. We've been in this one verse. This is the third week, if you've been around. This is the third week we've been in this verse. Yep, we're going to camp out one more week in this verse because, whoo, God blew my mind in, in, in this, this verse. So let's stand to our feet, and we do this just to honor God's word. You should probably have this verse memorized. I have it memorized by now, but I want to read from the word of God. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew. Tell me out loud. Who's the child? Right. This is, this is a story of Jesus being born and then the first couple months. And now this is like a summary statement. Verse 40, the child Jesus grew, because every kid does, and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Okay, you can, you can be seated. Two weeks ago when we introduced this verse, I talked about how this word child is a really cool word because Luke, who has a good vocabulary, could have used a word that referred to someone who's 40 days old, which is what Jesus is now. He's a couple months old. There's a word that just means infant. He doesn't use that word, even though Jesus is, is, is an infant right now. He also could have used other words to describe, but he chose a word that's a broad word. And I think he did it on purpose. It's a word that describes an infant and a toddler and um, you know, school-age kid and an adolescent. It's, it's a broad-ranged word that covers the whole spectrum, the whole range of childhood. And I loved that because um, we, we talked two weeks ago, three weeks ago, about how as that child grows through those stages, we need to adjust our parenting to that developmental age. You don't parent a 14-year-old the way you parent a four-month-old or a four-year-old. And as you adjust your parenting style to the age, you have these different stages that you're in. We talked about the five stages of parenting. That was a couple weeks ago. And I said to you, we need as parents wisdom to get to know what to do in each one of those stages. And we need wisdom when our kids are infants. We need wisdom when our kids are in the terrible twos. We need wisdom when our kids are in adolescence. And we need wisdom when our kids leave the home and now they're adults and we're, we're still their parents, but we got to parent very, very differently. That's the five stages of parenting. And because of the need for that wisdom, last week our campus pastors talked about, each one of our guys talked about at their own campuses, this idea of the wisdom of God. What is it? How do I get it? How do I live it? How do I pass it on to my kids? And that leads us today to this last phrase, and the grace of God was on him. Again, remind you, on Jesus. And I'm, and I'm reading that. And, you know, I've been preaching the Bible for a long time. I've been studying the Bible for a long time. And I know this verse really well. But it, it never struck me like it did this time Jesus needed grace? In fact, I've actually said, standing right here, Jesus doesn't need grace. You do, I do. Jesus doesn't need grace. Was I, was I wrong? <laughs> I mean, it says the grace of God was on Jesus. Well, let me add to that statement. I still believe Jesus doesn't need grace, but he did need grace, which some of you are like, whoa, 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 that's, that, that's, that doesn't sound right. You know, Jesus doesn't need grace, I agree, but he didn't need grace either. I, I, I disagree. Let me show you 
Why? Just in a couple of verses later, this is verse 40 and verse 52, a similar kind of verse, but now Luke's telling us that Jesus grew in favor. Guess what that word favor means? It's the word grace. It's the exact same word as this word here, charis. If you've named your daughter Carissa or Kara, that's from the word, the Greek word grace. It's the exact same word. Jesus grew in grace? Whoa, 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 whoa. This is just a mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling, but it's so good. So let's talk about the grace that Jesus needed because it's the same grace you need, and yet it's different. So let's talk about that. In fact, let's start by defining um, what is grace, okay? Uh, And those of you who have been around for a long time, you can parrot a definition uh, that is um, unmerited favor, right? I bet you a bunch of you know the definition. Grace is, is the unmerited favor of God or something like that. And um, while there's definitely some truth to that, I don't think it goes far enough. And furthermore, I, we throw around the word grace. We sing the word grace. We hear sermons. We do Bible studies. We use, we d- use that phrase, that definition, un, God's unmerited favor. We, we're so used to it. I don't think we really grasp what it means, and not only that, as I shepherd, as I pastor people, this church, I see family after family after family, Christian home after Christian home after Christian home, who can tell me all about grace, but there isn't any of it in their family. It's like there's a disconnect between the theology of grace, between what the Bible says about grace and what I'm singing about and what I, you know, I agree with, there's a disconnect between that and actually how I live as a father, as a mother, how I, quote unquote, run my home, how we do family. And it's like, we don't know how to do this. So, so let's go back to a biblical, I'm, I'm gonna just literally pull out from some of your favorite verses about grace. And we're gonna construct, <laughs> that's why I, I wanted every word to be a blank. We're gonna construct my definition drawn from the scripture about what, I think a better definition of grace than just God's unmerited favor. So it starts in Ephesians 2, 5. Ephesians 2 talks a ton about the grace of God, has those several phrases that by grace you have been saved. And I think when most Christians hear the word grace, they kind of default to saving grace, this kind of grace. And wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. When we talk about amazing grace, when we sing about amazing grace, this is a lot of part of what we're talking about, the, the saving grace of God that saves us. But in my Bible, there's a verse right before verse five. It's verse four, and it's very insightful because it helps us see the heart and soul of what grace is. So I'll put it up on the screen for you. Because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. This is the grace, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace we have been saved. Oh, beautiful, love it. But did you notice that the grace comes from the love of God? The Bible doesn't say God is grace. It does say God is love. So grace is the expression of the character of God, the love of God. So you could write down this word love here. I'm gonna kind of put pieces together. It's God's love 
in us, but what's it doing in us? Well, in Ephesians 2, it's saving us, which is one example of the grace of God working in us. See, grace is so much bigger than saving grace. And what I want to help you see today is some of the breadth of that, some of the bigness of that, and the grace of God that is at the very core, his love, it is working. We talk about this all the time, that God is always working in us. That's his grace at work in every person. Even people who don't believe in God, God's grace, God's common grace is working. It has appeared into this world and it's working all around us. We want to begin to understand what that is. Now, back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We, we know this, this, many of us have this verse memorized and we know how important this being saved by grace and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works. We understand that. And so we talk about the God's unmerited favor being, I didn't earn it and I don't deserve it. In other words, grace really has nothing, nothing to do with you first. It's not about how good you've been or whether you're good, or whether you've been good today, or whether you've been good for a while. It's also not about how bad you are. It's not about you. Grace does not start with you. It starts in the heart of God, in the God, God's love. And it's, so since it has nothing to do with us, it's unconditional. You can put that word in there. It, there's no conditions on the love of God. God loves us no matter what. And because God is love, that gets expressed as grace. God's grace is completely unconditional. You have never lived a day where God loved you more than yesterday. You've never lived a moment where God's grace was more active in your life than it was before. God's grace is like the sun that's shining. It's just always emanating from his heart of love. And the sun shines on everybody. It doesn't pick people to sun on. The sun doesn't shine brighter one day than another day. Now, clouds get in the way and other kinds of things, but it's a picture for a long time. People have recognized that the sun is kind of a picture of God's love, God's character, God's grace. It's just shining, emanating forth. And so many of us can say that intellectually, but we believe and we live our belief and that when I really screw up or when I sin or go back into that sin that I've been trying to get out of, we convince ourselves that somehow God is exasperated with us and that he withholds his grace because he's given us so much already and we still haven't appreciated it. So why should he continue? And we, we know intellectually this isn't true, but the way we talk to ourselves, the way we treat ourselves... It's almost as if God has a limited supply of grace and you better not use it up. Even though we sing about the unlimited grace of God, and even though if you asked us intellectually, does God's, does God's grace ever wear out? No. Does God's grace ever get to an end? No. Is there ever a reservoir that runs out of the grace of God? No. And yet, in our own life, we feel like, but I've, I'm back into that sin again. And it's a besetting sin. The bottom line is really, I, I might be addicted to it. I, I just can't seem to shake it. And God surely must be exasperated with me. 
let me show you something that is so beautiful. I, and I don't, I don't know anybody else that talks about this. I wish they did. But it's, it comes from a study of the Greek word for grace. The word for grace, charis, is not, the, not a root word. It's a word that's built on another Greek word. This is important because that Greek root word is the word joy. And people who know this don't see the connection, so they don't talk about it. But there is something about the root of joy that produces grace, that is connected to grace. And let me show you how this works. Since grace doesn't start with you, it doesn't come from you, it doesn't get its orient, uh, its beginning from, uh, it gets it from God. So God joyfully gives his unconditional love that's working. This is so important because I think some of us think that God grudgingly gives the grace. I mean, I'm so tired of you. Jim, will you ever get that together? He's never said that. He's never said that about you. He has never used an exasperated tone with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God delights in giving you grace? He's like on his tippy toes. He's like, yippee, I love. I mean, it's as animated as you can imagine, God. I love to give grace. I love, it just comes out of me. This is, this is me at my best, man. Wow. And so you most get to the point where you think, well, we should sin more since God loves to give grace so much. And people like that thought that way in Romans chapter five and six. And Paul addresses that. Read Romans 6 sometimes. No, no, no. Should we increase our sin so that God's grace will increase? No, no, no. You don't understand what grace is if you say that. You're trampling on the grace of God. But don't let that we shouldn't abuse the grace of God turn into we shouldn't use the grace of God. See what I'm saying? Don't abuse it. But don't ignore it either. Drink it up, drink it, because God loves, he, he delights in pouring out unconditional love upon us, and he delights in, in that grace working in us. So here's my definition of grace. It's God's joyful, unconditional love working in us. And it's working in all kinds of ways. And you could take, take any, any word in the Bible, any sentence in the Bible, any verse in the Bible that has the word grace and plug this into it. So by grace, you have been saved. By God's joyful, unconditional love working in us, we have been saved. I mean, see how this opens up and suddenly a, a doctrine that's good, that's beautiful, but overused and maybe misunderstood and definitely misunderstood suddenly starts to have new light that God in all of his grace, and here's just a couple examples of God's different kinds of grace. God in all of his grace, is it's his joyful, unconditional love working in us. And that's true of Jesus too? Yes. The grace of God was on him, Luke 2.40 says. Let's plug in our definition. Uh, the child grew and um, became strong and was filled with wisdom, and God's joyful, unconditional love was working in Jesus. You're like, how? And, and you know, we, we're coming back to this whole idea of why did Jesus need grace? Here's a very profound answer that is so simple, we've missed it. Why did Jesus need grace? Because he's a kid. He was a kid. <laughs> really, that's, it's that simple. See, some of us have such an elevated 
view of the divinity of Jesus. He's fully God. Way to go, because not everybody gets that. Way to go. But don't celebrate the, the full godness, the full divinity of Jesus to the extent that you actually push down or neglect his full humanity. And so I think today, some people really struggle with grasping the full humanity of God. You know, there's, there's both people who struggle, divinity, humanity. But it shows up in this humanity in that we have a hard time believing that Jesus needed grace as a child because our version of Jesus is being fully God and fully man is that he came out of the womb quoting Hebrew. He came out of the womb, you know, as a 30-year-old man. And we, we laugh at that and go, that's ridiculous. But the way that we think about Jesus sometimes, it's like, wait a minute, he was a kid. He, he cried. He, he, he was a little boy that needed to be taught how to speak, taught how to read, learn his alphabet. He, he, he was a little boy who, who needed someone to take care of him. He was an infant and a child like anybody else. So if that's the case, well, then what kind of grace did Jesus need? Is it the saving grace we just talked about? What do you think? At age three, did Jesus need to be saved? Nope. That's not the kind of grace he needed. Well, sanctifying grace, is that what Jesus needed? You know, we could actually kind of bounce around this list, but let me just hone in quickly. It's this one right here is the first one, first kind of grace Jesus needed. He needed that kind of grace that nurtures children. Remember how Paul says in the King James Version of Ephesians 6 that we're to bring up our children in the nurture of the Lord? That's this, that's this word here. And um, this nurturing pictures this whole spectrum that we talked about two weeks ago in the five stages of parenting. We talked about the first stage being nurturing trainer stage, where you're, you're nurturing that infant just out of the womb. And I told you to, to be a helicopter parent there. Do not be a helicopter parent when they're 10 or 12 or 15. Um, but when they're two weeks old, two months old, when they're young infants, you be a helicopter, you hover around them because you're nurturing very important needs in their life. You're meeting very important needs with your nurture. And we'll talk more about that. But Jesus needed that. He needed to be fed. Jesus did not come out of the womb feeding himself. He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed. He needed to be carried. Jesus, the Son of God, needed to be carried. And he needed to be caressed. He needed to be kissed. And he needed to have Mary and Joseph look into his eyes. He needed everything every other child needed, that nurturing. But, you know, there's a couple other places in the Bible that talk about this different kinds of grace. Here's a famous one, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared to all people, offering salvation. Wonderful. But that verse goes on, and we see that this grace is not just salvation grace, saving grace. It teaches. What's it? That's the grace. I don't want you to miss this. There is a grace that is nurturing, and there is a teaching grace. Grace teaches. Maybe you've never seen that before. There it is, clear as a bell. So Jesus needed to be taught. He, he didn't know his alphabet. He didn't know the scriptures as a two-month-old baby. You know, Jesus, Jesus was the word of God. I know, but he's two months old, like every other two-month-old. And this word teaches it's a real colorful world. I'll just spend a couple of seconds on it, and I'll come back to it later. The, if you've got the ESV, it translates it as training, okay? That's the same word 
as that the, word, the, the teaching word, but it gives it a little bit more color. So Jesus needed nurturing grace. He needed teaching grace. He needed training grace. He needed to be trained like any other little boy, you know, to a certain age. And then let me show you this real quickly. From 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about a time in his life when he had what was called a thorn in the flesh. And he makes this offhand comment that, you know, that, that he had said to God, would you please take this away from me? Please, I'm, I'm the apostle Paul. <laughs> please take this away. And God says, actually, I'm gonna teach you through that. My grace is sufficient. You're gonna be okay. We need to hear this from time to time. And God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to about our lives or our children's lives. God, fix this. Take care of it. My grace is sufficient. Mm. Because my power is working in my grace. So we can call this empowering grace. And we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the grace of God to our life. So when we're saved by grace, that is, we're saved by grace by the work of the Holy Spirit, applying that grace, I'm getting in the theological weeds here, but hang in there, that God, the Spirit, applies that grace to our lives and regenerates us, causes us to be born again. The Spirit is the Spirit of God's grace, Paul calls it, the Spirit of grace, and he applies the grace of God to our life. And so it's no surprise that later on in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, and Jesus, full of the Spirit, and Jesus, led by the Spirit, and Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. So it's Jesus, even now as an adult, he's empowered by the grace of God. Wow, there's so much more to see, but just want you to see that Jesus needed grace. And that grace that he grew in, back to our verse, that grace that God had poured upon him, you see it in different places, like in a couple chapters or a chapter from this, we're going to see the baptism of Jesus where God opens the heavens and, and joyfully, unconditionally loves Jesus by saying, this is my son. You can just feel the, the, the smile on, Jesus, on God's face. This is my son, my only son who I love. With him I am well pleased. Do you hear the joy, the unconditional love? The grace of God showering upon Jesus at his baptism. We'll get to that later. But, but back to our verse. Jesus needed God's grace because he was a child that was growing just like your kids. So now we're going to dig more deeply into your parenting, your discipling, because every kid, every disciple needs, I, mean, I can't emphasize that word enough, needs the grace of God. And I want to rip through real quickly four kinds of grace that your children need. Four kinds of grace every disciple needs. And maybe I should actually say four categories because each one of the four kinds, if you've got your notes there, you see I've got three or four each in each, you know, each category. The first thing I want you to see, though, <laughs> is that God's designed the home as the very best place for this kind of grace we're going to talk about to be learned, to be experienced. It's not the church that is the very best place to learn grace. It's the home. Now, church is a great place to teach grace, but learning is a lot more than just being taught. Learning means I'm, I'm absorbing it into my life. I, I, I'm living it. So you haven't learned something. 
until it's affected your beliefs, your faith, your will, your actions, your habits. A lot of people learn things intellectually and think they've learned it. So I, I know the facts about grace, but I'm mean. I know the facts about grace, but I'm stingy. I know the facts about grace, but don't cross me. I can tell you, I can preach about grace, but I'm not giving it to anyone, especially my kids. You haven't learned grace. I don't care how good of a paper you can write, how good of a Bible study you can lead, how good of a sermon you can write. I don't care how good of a song you can write. I don't care if you're talking about grace. makes everybody cry. You haven't learned it until you're living it. So the home is the best place to learn grace. Why? Because that's where we start sinning. (laughs) That's where we start missing the mark. That's where we start being selfish. It's in the home that this original sin, this, this depravity that's in every human heart begins to express itself. And so that's when we need to experience grace. Really? Yes. And here's, here's where it starts. It starts when they're just an infant, when they're even in, in the womb. It starts with what we call this nurturing grace, the grace that makes kids feel loved. Let me back up. The grace that makes kids feel loved, accepted, and secure. Every home has a climate. Every parent is a thermostat. You set the climate in your home. Is it a home where your kids feel up? Notice I'm not asking you. Please look up here. I'm not saying this, that um, every, every kid needs to be in a home that's loving. I'm not saying every home, every kid needs to be in a home that's accepting. I'm saying that grace is that kind of joyful, unconditional love that's working in God that helps people feel loved. Doesn't every parent love their kid? I I hope so. But does every kid feel loved by their parent? No. Let me let you in on a secret. If, because I'm so busy with my job, I'm so busy with my stuff, my shows, my internet, social media life, that my kids become a distraction, they become frustrating, they become in the way, then my kids may hear me talk about love, acceptance, and feeling secure, but they will not feel it. You can't say one thing and do another and expect your kids to get what you're just saying. Your home has a climate. Is it a climate of grace where they feel loved? See, this starts from infancy. This is why we need to look our kids in the eyes as they're infants and just, lo- and just pour into them face-to-face, eye-to-eye, lots of minutes, not just like a minute a day, but you know, every day as much as possible, just pouring in and holding them, caressing them, speaking to them before they even know what's going on. I love you. I love you so much. Hearing those words, I Read the book, I Love You Forever, to them, you know. It's a classic book. Let them know that they are accepted, that they are secure. Because this nurturing grace that we talked about from Ephesians 4, bring your kids up in the nurturing grace of God. They need it. So what, you know, what could that look like? That you would say to your kids, I love you just for who you are. Not for what you do or what you don't do. In other words, 
I don't love you when you behave or if you behave. My love for you is unconditional. It has nothing to do with your behavior. Because kids lie. They sin. They screw up. They hide. They, they hit their sister. They, they're snotty. They're rebellious. Yes, even your kids. They, and so what do they need? Love. Acceptance. The worst possible message a Christian parent could send to their kids is to shower them with love when they behave because we're trying to do positive reinforcement and then thinking that when I withdraw my love to show them I don't approve of that behavior, that they're going to get the message, oh, I shouldn't do that. No, the message they're getting is that I'm not loved when I sin, that I'm not loved when I screw up. That is a destructive message. And you're like, well, I don't want my kids to misbehave, so I don't want to encourage them. No, no, no. It's the, the grace of God is bigger than that. This is not your grace. This is you being a conduit of the grace of God. So you, you, you say to your kids, I love you for who you are. It doesn't matter whether you behave or not. My love is steady and consistent. I will always love you no matter what. I remember this, the first time this, I learned this was I was a young father. I had a little boy. I was putting him to bed one night, and we'd been singing and dancing, and, and pray, I'd been praying over him. And I put him in the crib, and before I left, I just prayed over him. And then I started to blubber. I'm not going to do that now. But I was, just, I was just saying to him, Ryan, I love you so much. There's, um, here it goes. There's nothing. He's an infant. And I said to him, there's nothing you could ever do that would cause me to withdraw my love. I love you. He's, he's, he's sleeping away, you know, but I'm just blubbering all over him. And I'm telling him, you know, you could do this. You could do that. I will always love you. And then, bam, God said to me, and that's the way I knew you. But exponentially more. Jim, listen to me, my Father in heaven said, there's nothing you could ever do that would cause me to love you less. My love, my grace is so much bigger than your sin, your failures, your mistakes, your rebellion, whatever it is you're in. And that is when I learned grace. I was a pastor by then. I was preaching about grace, teaching about grace, written, written papers in seminary about grace. I could you know, tell you all about grace, but that's when I learned it in that moment parenting. As a matter of fact, I think I've learned more about God from my wife and my children than any book I've read, any sermon I've preached. It's, it's the people that God puts in our life. And that's the family is where we learn to, to learn grace. It's the very best place. So I will always love you. There's nothing you could ever do that would ever make me stop loving you. These messages that help the kid feel loved, deeply accepted, and secure. One more thing. I know I'm out of time, but I, I just got to say this. If our kids don't learn this at this stage of infancy and, and very, very young, they will spend the rest of their life 
trying to fill that hole in their heart of feeling loved, feeling accepted. Some of you, as adults, you look so good. You're so mature. You have so many good things going for you. But deep down inside, you don't feel loved. Does your spouse love you? Yes, they do. But you don't feel loved because there's a hole down there that never got filled. This is why parenting is so important. And so you spend the rest of your life trying to fill that, prove that, perform to get that because you never felt loved, accepted, and secure. This is why this is so important. This is why we need to be with our kids. I know they're a handful, but that's why God gave them to you. Be the parent God intended for you to be. Pour into them. Okay, we gotta keep moving on because these kids that, are, that need to be loved and accepted and secure, they're sinners. And so they need the grace of God to be saved. Well, I hope Pastor Jim preaches that. I hope children's ministry talks about grace. No, they learn it in the home. Why? Because this whole idea of the grace that saves us is best learned in the moment where that kid discovers that I need a Savior. If you just tell them about salvation, you need to be saved, but it's not in the moment when they feel terrible, when they feel like a sinner, when they realize, I just lied. I just hit my sister again. I just stole that. They're not going to connect their need for salvation, their need for the grace of God. It just becomes intellectual. Just because something they see the home is where we sin, the home is where we lie, the home is where we screw up. That's where we learned grace. And so Paul, he's so excited about the grace that saves us. He's talking about the grace that redeems us and the grace that forgives our sins. All of these things that Paul's talking about, this grace, this is that first or that second kind of, of grace that every child needs, every home needs to be celebrating. But thirdly, B, now C. The grace that teaches. Remember I told you we're going to come back to this verse? Track with me now. Titus 2. We said this is the grace that teaches. And we said it's the grace that trains us. Well, that's what what discipleship is all about. That's what parenting is all about. Training. Teaching and training. So it's the grace of God that has a teaching component to it. The grace of God teaches. The grace of God trains us. And then Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, there's this grace that encourages us. So write that down. The grace that teaches, trains, and encourages, that is best learned in the home because that's where life makes up its mind. That's where, you, that's where you get shaped as a human being, and we all need to learn that grace. Okay, keep moving. The grace that strengthens us. I love how the writer of the Hebrews says, it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. There is a nurturing grace, a teaching grace, and a strengthening grace. Cool? We've already talked about the grace that empowers us from 2 Corinthians 12. Now there's this grace that is training us to do what? This will be the last time we're in Titus 2, I promise you. The grace of God's teaching us, is training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. The grace of God is training us to live a life that's self-controlled, that's upright and godly. godly. That's, that's sanctification. That's Christ-likeness. That's godliness. So that is a grace that is sanctifying us, a grace that's transforming us. And so we need all of these four categories of grace, and the home is where we best learn these. So let's just summarize this. This is, the, this is nurturing grace. B, this is saving grace. C, 
This is what we might call training grace. And then D, this is the, the transforming grace, the sanctifying grace. Our kids need that. And the best place to learn it is in the home. And yet, it doesn't happen in home after home after home. Why? Why do we send our kids to Christian schools to learn this? Why do we send our kids to church to learn this? Why aren't we teaching this? Or if we do, why aren't we teaching it as a lifestyle? I think one of the biggest reasons is because we haven't discovered that we need grace. Oh, again, back to intellectually. I know I need an ex-intellectually, but I, I discovered so many people that live on this spectrum of the grace of God, one extreme or the other. This extreme over here, if you're watching me, is what we call the libertines. It's, it's all I know about the grace of God. The grace of God means I can do whatever I want <laughs> because there's grace. I can sin. I can lie. I mean, hey, I get God's grace. I can do whatever I want, and God's grace will be there. You are abusing the grace of God. You're trampling the death of Christ. Read Hebrews over and over again. You don't understand grace. The other spectrum, I find a lot of people living here. The other spectrum is I can tell you all about grace, but I'm not very good at giving it to myself. And so maybe it's the old tapes that are playing. Maybe it's the, what I miss as a kid. I don't, you know, it could be lots of things. But in my heart of hearts, in the soundtrack that plays in my mind, I am beating myself up for failing again, for sinning again, for screwing up again. And we condemn ourselves. We would never tell anybody else this. If you could, get, if you could see the soundtrack that plays in your neighbor's mind, it would blow you away. And you would see it's very similar to yours. A lot of you are beating yourself up quietly, you're poisoning your heart and soul because of this negative talk. You have not received the grace of God that you talk about. Or to use Paul's words to the Corinthians, you are receiving the grace of God in vain and you're not applying it to yourself. And that's why you're harsh. And that's why you're unforgiving. And that's why you're judgmental. And that's why you treat your kids so so badly, so harshly, because you're, you're a person who's starving for the grace of God. You're not sure how to live it out. And so hurt people hurt people. And since you're not being transformed, you transmit your hurt and your pain onto your kids. This is happening all over the place. So the libertine who does whatever I want, who abuses God's grace, and the person on this side who, for whatever reason, and there's lots of reasons, is just beating themselves up. And there's that quiet, deadly soundtrack. But kids, but, but, but kids, as if I'm your father. <laughs> Guys, gang, friends, we are children before we are parents. Duh, but sometimes does need to be just looked at. You're not going to be able to give your kids what you are not living in. Or put it this way, you can't pass on what you're not living. So again, you talk about grace, but you're harsh. You sing about grace. You may even tell your kids, 
God is a God of grace, but you're a judgmental, prosecuting attorney who's trying to nail your kid's butt against the wall every time they lie. Let me tell you two stories. I know, I'm not Italian, but this, I just, this, is, this to me is just so important. Two stories. They're both about my, second, my third child. Her name is Krista. I asked her for permission to tell these stories. Some of you already know these stories because you grew up with her. First story is when she was in, uh, was that in high school? When she was in high school, she set on fire a roll of toilet paper and then threw it in the trash. I see some people shaking their heads. You can remember this. And, and she, she wasn't malicious. She wasn't trying to burn the school down. She was just like, you know, just being a kid. You know, right? it's what kids do. Well, that's against the rules, trying to set a fire in the school. So I get a call from principal at the time, Daryl Dunkel, and he says to me, um, hey, you need to come down. I need to talk to you about something that happened. I'm like, what? And he said, well, we'll get down here. So we get down there. He's like, tell me the story of what Chris did. I'm like, whoa. He goes, how do you want to handle this? I'm like, well, wow, how would you handle it with the other kid? Well, they'd get suspended. Then you need to suspend her. He goes, okay. He didn't say this, but I think he was thinking, you're not going to try to talk me out of this? You know, hey, you're the senior pastor. You know, I don't want my kid to get, you know, suspended. So, you know, let me pull some strings here. No, no. What was I doing? Punishing my child? No, I wanted her to taste the consequences. I didn't have to say a word. I let the consequences speak. And so she got suspended for three days, and uh, she had to do the fire safety classes, and I, did, I went with her. And I, I just found out a couple years later that I did something else that I didn't even know and, or, or that I forgot, and that is that instead of screaming at her, instead of lecturing her, instead of reinforcing what, what Mr. Dunkel said, instead of, like, making her work and sit in your room, I said, you're going to spend the next three days with me. Now, that could be a punishment for some people, you know, being with me for three days. But uh, I just said, you know, I, I, want, I want you to know that I love you, and I want you to feel that love. I know you feel bad for what happened, but I just want you to know that your behavior has changed the way I love you. And she told me years later that changed her life because she was expecting me to throw the book at her, even this one, and to nail her butt against the wall because she embarrassed me in front of the church and the school, and, and you know, she had all these things. Well, what's that going to do? And when I gave her grace, when I said, let's be together, I even took her to ice cream one of those days. You're thinking, what a terrible parent. You're rewarding your kid? No. She knew that she was wrong. She knew. She was beating herself up. She didn't need me to come in. What she needed was to know that she's loved and accepted for being a kid. And I didn't realize the impact it made until years later. And as she was telling me, I thought of all these other times that I did screw up pretty bad. I can remember one time where I I found out that she lied to me and she was at a party that I told her she couldn't go to. And I did not handle that well. And I let her have it. I'm like, you lied to me. I trusted you. And I just, boom, boom, I just laid into her, you know. Do you think she felt loved and accepted? You think she, when I was the prosecuting attorney going after her, what if instead of telling her, I know, I got people who are watching my kids. I know you can't get away with this. You know, what if that, instead I had said to her something like this, in an unemotional moment, I had said, isn't it awesome how much God loves us? Yeah, yeah, dad. I mean, God's grace, he's, he's always with us. I know, you know, isn't that great? Isn't it, isn't it um, amazing that God's grace and his love is, is surrounding us even when we're doing wrong things? Now, now, she has no idea where I'm going with this, but I'm just like, 
trying to get her to experience grace. What, and I said, I didn't do this, but what if I had? What if I had said, and, you know, even like last night, God was with you. And she was lying to me and going to a party. She said she wasn't supposed to. What if she's hearing that God loves me and accepts me for who I am, even when I'm disobeying my dad? What if she had heard that from, the, from me as a father? Wouldn't that have been so much better than nailing her butt against the wall and telling her, I know you lied. I know that you were the wrong place. And, and if that gift of grace would have caused her to go, how did you know, Dad? I was at the party last night. Who told you? No, that, she didn't have to say that. That wouldn't have not been the goal of my saying, you know, that God was with you last night. She knew she lied to me. She knew she disobeyed. She didn't need, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and neither are you. She doesn't need me to tell her she sinned. But do you see the power of grace that ambushes us even when we're really aware of our sin and takes us by surprise and it sticks with her? I never said, you know, I never said any of this, but if I, if I had said to her, you know, that God's grace is with us even last night, you know, and even if we never had the conversation about what she did last night, that grace of God is teaching her because she's aware of her sin. But dad didn't use it to trick her or to twist. He just reminded her of the grace of God. Wouldn't that have been a much better parenting? Don't you think she would have gotten more about the grace of God with that if I'd handled that better like I did the other one? So, you know, guys, there are tons of opportunities to show, to teach grace because our kids sin a lot. Even yours do. And so every time they do, tell them the gospel. Tell them about how God loves them, how they're special to God, how he's made them in their, in their image. They're made in his image. And tell them about Jesus. Tell them about why he died on the cross. And do that as you're setting up the consequences or as you're talking about, now this is going to happen. You had to get suspended or, or whatever the situation is. You're telling them the story of Jesus. You're setting that climate we talked about, and you're being the thermostat because you're setting a climate of grace. And I think we struggle with this because we don't know the difference between God's job, our job, and our kid's job. So what, what is God's job? If you were to fill in this blank, what's God's job? I think most people would say, well, God's job is to give us kids, and then our job is to get them to behave. Our job is to train our kids, to change them so they become good behavior kids, they become good Christians to become good contributors to society. That's what parenting is, is getting them to behave to change those kids to be good people. Uh, nope, that's not your job. And what's the kid's job? Well, do what I say. <laughs> so I think that's where most of us live. Now, I want to challenge that and say, instead of it being your job to change your kids, it's God's job. Let that sink in. From beginning to end, it's God's job to change your kids. You can't change them. Have you come to the point where you realize that you can't make anybody do something? Oh, I mean, you can for a moment. You can for a couple years. You can make your kids obey. But wait until they get out of that house. You can control your kids. You can threaten your kids. You can be harsh with your kids, and you can make them obey. It's like the old story about the the, the kid that says, the mom says, sit down, and he won't sit down. She says, I'll make you sit down. So she pushes him down. She says, now. He goes, but I'm standing up in my own heart. It's the tragic story. You're making me sit, but I'm standing in here. See, 
Our kids have a God who's committed to change them. And he's got a long story he's telling them. He didn't give them to us so that we could change them. <laughs> My watch just said, did you just fell down? Should we call the emergency? I, I didn't fall. Golly. Um, so what is our job then? It's to show them their need for grace. See, when they sin, when they lie, when they screw up, there's the platform. Show them, teach them, show them they need. Everybody say this word with me out loud. Need. You need to help your kids see that they need God so that their job will be to turn to him. See how that changes everything? It, it takes the pressure off of you. You were never called to be the change, the person that changed them. Your job is to love them, accept them, give them consequences, teach them, train them, and create a climate of grace, and then show them their need for that grace. Because see, grace has the power to do what no one else, what nothing else can do, to transform us. <laughs> see, you can't transform your kids. You are un able. And when you as a parent, when you as a leader, when you as a discipler come to the realization that you can't make anyone do anything, you're forced to learn to influence. And influence is always a more powerful thing than, than pushing, you know, exercising your authority and pushing your way. Making people do things just gets them behave for a moment but showing them, teaching them, modeling them, showing their need for grace so that they will turn to God and, and drink deeply of God's grace. That's the power to transform. See, when you fully grasp that God's grace will transform you, it'll change who you are and it will change the way you parent. I'll close with this. We started the sermon saying, what's our greatest problem? And we named all these things. None of those. What's the greatest problem? <laughs> Way to go. It's me. It's you. And what a gift it is when we realize I'm unable to please God. I'm unable to be righteous. I'm unable to parent well. I'm unable to be like Christ. Why is it a gift? Because now I can lean into the grace of God and the salvation he gives, and apply Jesus' death on the cross to me, and, and his righteousness becomes mine, and his life becomes mine, and I am getting transformed. My awareness of my inability is the greatest day of my life, because now, in my helplessness and my powerlessness, I can drink deeply of the grace of God. Or you can keep on trying to do it yourself. Don't you love the grace of God? It'll transform you. It'll transform the way you parent. See, it's true, isn't it? We, I'll accelerate this. We need, <laughs> caps, we need the grace of God. Where, 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 where do I get that? Hebrews chapter 
10. I forgot what word's at. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us then approach God's throne of, everybody say this word with me. Let's approach his throne of grace with confidence, not arrogance, with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has, offered, has invited us there. Come, come, all you who are heavy and weary, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me so may we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we sing this song around here. Lord, I come, I confess. And usually we sing that song, Confessing My Sin. But today, can I ask us to change it or expand it to be, Lord, I come and I confess my need for you, your grace. I don't want to try to do this myself. I can't. I've realized it. I need you. As we sing this song, we find that the rest that he offers is ours if we will confess. When we realize, without you, I can't, I can't do it. I can't parent. I can't be a good spouse. I can't, I, I can't be a good Christian. I can't disciple people. I need you. You're the one that guards my heart. So, Lord, here I am. I give myself to you. I confess I need you every moment. In fact, let's just pray this right now. Lord, I confess I need you every moment. And I pray that all over Church of the Open Door, people would get that and that they would agree in their own heart, yes, I get it. I need you right now, this moment. Every hour, every moment, we need you, Lord. So would you come and meet us. For everyone here who has come to the point where they realize I need God deeper than I ever realized. So I'm talking about people who have never become Christians, and I'm talking about people who have been Christians for 80 years. Today, we become more deeply aware of our need. When we come to you, <laughs> grace us. May it be your joy to give us your joyful, unconditional love and to pour it out upon us. As you dance over us, delighting, and this is what I love to do as God. I love to give grace. I love to pour out my unconditional love. I'm so excited to do this today, says God, in your life and in mine. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's confess our great need. And let's receive his grace, even this very, very moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.